You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating, episode 37 with Robin Goldberg. Robin is a certified eating disorder registered dietitian and supervisor and has been practicing for 25 years. She specializes in medical conditions, disordered eating, eating disorders, health at every size, and pre-pregnancy nutrition. She is a contributing author and is a nationally and internationally known registered dietitian nutritionist. She has been quoted in lots of publications and has been on national TV. Robin is the author of the book, The Eating Disorder Trap, and the host of the podcast, The Eating Disorder Trap Podcast. Today, Robin and I talk about various different topics. One of them, talking about how eating disorders have been glamorized in our world and specifically in the media and in Hollywood. Why have eating disorders become the one mental illness that has been glamorized? And what is it about eating disorders that people so badly want? to have an eating disorder in some very strange way and how harmful that actually is for all of us. All right, let's get started. Thank you so much for joining me, Robin. I'm excited to have this conversation. Maybe before we jump into our conversation, can you just share a little bit about you, who you are, what you do, all that? Thank you, Raquel. So my name is Robin Goldberg. I'm a registered dietitian nutritionist and a certified eating disorder registered dietitian and supervisor, as well as a certified intuitive eating counselor. And I'm the author of the book, The Eating Disorder Trap, as well as the host of the podcast, The Disorder Trap Podcast, and co-author of the online course, Your Recovery Resource for Parents and Partners that Have a Loved One Struggling with an Eating Disorder. I have a private practice. Actually, next week will be 25 years, April wow, 7th. Congratulations. Thank you very much. And I see kids, tweens, teens, adults with body image issues, medical issues, as well as eating disorders. And I started my career at Cedar Sinai Medical Center as the cardiac dietitian and then Department of Gastroenterology. So I see all ages, all body shapes and sizes. And I love having just a variety of clients. And I think I've been able to have, you know, diversity in my practice and it's been really cool. I think, you know, the last couple of years with COVID it's been, I would say a different wave of clients from the standpoint of just very acute and not all the medical issues that I would always have. I feel like that's more of the sideline versus the focal point has been just very ill individuals that require more oftentimes than outpatient care to improve their relationship with food and their body. They're needing the medical stabilization piece sort of go into residential. So that's just a little bit about me and <laughs> a big mouth. So it's safe to say, you know, a little bit about eating disorders. <laughs> Some things that have been coming up and I think it might be worthwhile to have a conversation about it is that the only disorder that's out there that's glamorized in the way that eating disorders is, is, is eating disorders. We don't glamorize any other thing. We don't glamorize anxiety, depression. Why do you think that is like, what is it about eating disorders that make us glamorize it or not us, but the world? 
Well, being that I live in the land of eating disorders in, in Hollywood, I there's so much. <laughs> it's I going mean, to be renamed. That's going to be on the sign underneath. <laughs> 100%. I've always felt thought, you know, between, and we hear this about, you know, diet culture, but I think Hollywood had really glamorized it and motion pictures, well, which do not portray an accurate reality of what goes on. And it's not a glamorous disease to say the least, but I think I hear time and time again, when I'm seeing an individual that let's say struggles with binge eating disorder, or they have bulimia nervosa, basically that they're not in the restricting category. I always hear individuals say to me, oh, I wish I had the problem of restricting and I wish I was malnourished. And I'll say, no, you really don't wish that. I'll say they're all equally as problematic. And I think it's like you've said, it's what we see, how it's been projected when we're reading someone's autobiography or their story and in a tabloid magazine or a book, it's like, oh, wow, look, they had it and look where they're at now. So I think it's been projected as to like, oh yeah, they can come out on the other side versus realizing you could die. Yeah, that's not glamorous at all. Even thinking about growing up, there were some people, and so I'm from New York City, so maybe the other land of eating disorders, but growing up, it was a compliment. Oh, you look anorexic. That is insane that that's become a compliment. I think it's insulting. And I think, again, there's individuals that are on reality TV, that are on commercials or game shows, and and I'm not even going to name drop. And you hear them speak about stuff. And I was just discussing with someone the other day, said, doesn't matter that they have trainers and chefs and dietitians. They're completely obsessed with plastic surgery and Photoshopping. And so it's not an accurate reality of what we're seeing. So you're saying that a lot of this, even if we're not going to blame media per se, although maybe we can, there's a certain element of either the thin ideal or whatever that looks like today. It's always changing. I can't keep up, but there's this ideal perfection, if you will, that's completely unattainable. And then when people see that, it's like, oh, I want to be like that. And how do you do that? Well, usually eating disorders are a result of that. Thinking about somebody who does either actively struggle with an eating disorder or is sort of on the continuum of disordered eating, how do you think that affects them with this glamorizing of eating disorders? Well, I I think it affects them that they have a very narrow and small world that they don't have space in their mind to think about other things, to be able to embrace and enjoy life, to be able to partake in getting out in the world, seeing friends, going for meals, going for coffee, just being able to live. It's unfortunate because eating disorders, I would say, are a slow way to kill yourself. And I think with the pandemic, it's been such an isolating time. And I don't have one client with an eating disorder that has felt like, oh, wow, I can't see my friends. It's like, I love that I don't have to eat with people. I love that I don't have to go to the market. And it's because eating disorders thrive on isolation, loneliness, and maybe it's heightened some OCD components, but it's really robbed a person of having a fulfilling grand life. 
So even going back to glamorizing eating disorders, they sort of portray this sort of aesthetic of what someone looks like underneath the surface. There is so much anxiety, so much isolation, a lot of obsessiveness, and they're not happy. That's not a life. And I love the point that you're saying that they're slowly killing themselves because I actually had one client tell me this a while ago that she doesn't engage in self-harm, but her eating disorder is a slow, almost socially acceptable form of self-harm. And she is slowly killing herself. Well, like you said, with it being a you know, been socially acceptable, I think disordered eating is socially acceptable. Being on the latest and greatest dietary fad is socially acceptable, whether our doctors or providers are recommending it, whether we see on restaurant menus, we offer such and such, or in windows, we're bombarded with these messages. And this has all been socially acceptable. So really, you know, I've always said that I feel like a salmon swimming upstream in the two decades I've been doing this. I see there's a lot more salmon swimming upstream with me. But when I started my career, I was like, literally, I felt like on my own island. Yeah. And also not enough salmon swimming upstream. Yeah. It's better now than over two decades ago, for sure. Yeah. I'm thinking about how the sort of socially acceptable disordered eating that has become, quote, normal for people and how that potentially justifies eating disorder behaviors for somebody who, again, either is on the disordered eating spectrum or has an eating disorder. And it's like, well, everybody does this. This is not disordered. What would you say to someone who says that? Well, I would say to someone, if you were a fly on the wall watching how this individual operates in day-to-day life, I can tell you they probably have cravings. They probably don't feel emotionally and physically satiated with what they're eating. They're constantly thinking about food or what they're going to eat, what they're not eating, how much they will move, how little they would move. They're constantly consumed with all these thoughts. And that doesn't sound normal, quote unquote, to me. It sounds clearly disordered and problematic, whereas there's only so much space in our brain. And when you're not taking in enough of what your body needs, your brain size shrinks and it becomes more consumed with food, body, movement, and everything centered around this topic. There's no world in which someone engages in eating disorder behaviors and doesn't have the obsessive thoughts and the anxiety and all that stuff in their head going on. It just doesn't happen. Never. It's impossible. And if someone says they don't have those thoughts, they're not being honest. Yeah, I'm sure. Switching gears ever so slightly, I'm curious. I wanted to ask you this because there's a whole piece in your book about nutrients and macros and just that whole topic. And I'm curious if you can say more about it. Sure. So I I think that was a good segue because especially when a person's thinking about, and I'm thinking about a a client I saw yesterday who has gone through menopause and she has all these food rules and medical issues. And unfortunately her physician had said, oh, cut out this, cut out that. And I had asked her if she felt that way had worked for her. And she said, no, I'm constantly thinking about food. I'm always hungry. And then I feel guilt when I'm honoring a craving and I'm binging on X, Y, and Z. And I had said to her, you know what I would imagine? That's a hard place 
to be because you're constantly thinking about what you're eating. I said, but I think to even just like literally three quarters to our session, I said, a growing baby consumes more food than you are. And I was like, you're an adult woman who's in menopause, not to mention has lost hair. She was telling me, she's like, can you tell I'm in a wig? And I was like, I have no idea you're like her hair looked natural. And she's like, next time I come Robin, I'm not going to wear the wig. I'm going to show you my bald spot. And I want you to see. And I said, well, I can tell you when you're not getting enough of everything, carbohydrates, proteins, fats, et cetera, there is not a body part spared. You might find you bruise easily. You have a harder time thinking your hair is thinning. You're losing more when you're brushing it. And all these different factors. And I you know, understand like for her, this was happening before, but it's like just gotten worse the more she has dieted and not had enough of all these different nutrients in her diet. And I always like to say, if one food provided everything we needed, there wouldn't be so many other types of foods out there. That's a good point. And we would maybe just take it in pill form or something. And that would be the end of it. But there like are the some other types. Like the what? Like the Jetsons. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think there's two points to that. It's, you got to make sure that, you know, you're taking advantage of many different types of foods, but then there's also the amount of food that you're eating. And so somebody can say, oh yeah, I have no problem with all foods. But if they're again, eating as much as a baby should if be you're eating. eating a fistful at a meal or in a day, I was just going to say that Yes, you might have a variety of nutrients, but if you're not serving yourself like what an adult would be eating, there's a problem there. Yeah. You mentioned the brain getting smaller, and I'm wondering if you can share a little bit more about what else happens when someone engages in restriction, whether it's the kinds of foods or food groups or even the quantity. Well, I think just kind of wrapped up in that, they have a lot of stomach issues. They have stomach aches, they're bloated, they're constipated. And even when I you know, talk to clients about their bowel movements and going to the bathroom, it's like, oh yes, I go daily. I'll say, do you feel like I you know, made a big poop or do you feel like they're little pelts? Oh, they're little balls. So, well, yeah, it sounds like you're constipated. It's like, isn't everyone like this? I'm like, no. No. <laughs> that have a variety of foods that eat enough of food. So that's one factor definitely being impacted where oftentimes individuals needing abdominal x-ray, certainly their liver, if you are malnourished, ultimately over time, autophagy, your liver feeds off of itself. I mean, there's many factors. The Wait one second. So I don't, I don't know too much about that. What does that mean? I talk about it in my book, actually. So basically, I mean, people don't realize that, you know, all these organs change in size, they get smaller. And it's like you're brain's having to work harder. Your heart's having to work harder. I mean, even, you know, you talk about kidneys, every organ part is impacted. And the good news is like with the liver, it can redevelop. Like as you start to add food, it re-evolves, which is great. So I think, you know, all these factors, I always like to say to clients are totally curable or able to be resolved and managed. It's not a forever fixated, like this is where my body is. It's like, yeah, you have the power to change that. And that's, I think, really important to share that hope in regards to, especially when they've been evaluated by an eating disorder physician from head to toe, because as I talk about in 
My books, labs don't always disclose everything, but when they are having a true medical evaluation, an EKG, a bone density, that can be very telling as well. Yeah. Well, in terms of the bone density, I've heard conflicting thoughts about reversing osteopenia or osteoporosis. What's your take on that? First of all, I'm not a physician, but I will say that, you know, the goal is for osteopenia to not progress into osteoporosis and how an individual can improve their situation versus having it become worse. So I can tell you with, you know, different rheumatologists I work with, as well as, you know, clients that are seeing endocrinologists, I mean, they will beg to speak, you know, differently about it, that yes, things can get better, but oftentimes they're needing medication too. It's not possible just with diets, weight-bearing activity, you know, dietary changes. It needs, you know, a supplement too. It's, it's a whole, whole area to encompass. Yeah. I mean, if we're thinking about this logically and all the effects that eating disorders could have on the body and how basically terrible it is, it's so easy to say, okay, like this isn't a thing that's helpful to me. And so I should get rid of it. I should probably work on that. And that's not ever what anybody says. (laughs) So go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, yes. I mean, an individual might know this on the surface, but I always like to say your eating disorder has served a purpose for you, or it wouldn't be a behavior that you would engage in, whether it's restricting, binging, purging, compulsively exercising, a combination. It has provided, you know, for many, it's helped them get through scary situations. It's been a form of survival through trauma. So it's like saying smoking is not good for me, but how come I can't stop? It's like something that's soothing and comforting. It's, I think, a similar type of like, you might have that information, realize it, but it's easier said than done. Yeah. So even though it's obviously a difficult process, what would you say for someone who's either starting out or in middle of their recovery process and they get into those days where it just feels so, so difficult? How would you encourage them? Or what are even some specific things that they can do to help themselves? Well, I think if an individual doesn't have the courage to create a team or the means to create a team, I think there's so many wonderful podcasts out there, like yours, mine, many others. I think being able to have that, I think joining different Facebook groups for support as well. And maybe it's starting out with, one provider that's an eating disorder specialist because it takes a team. So, you know, the ideal is that you have an eating disorder trained therapist or mental health care provider, eating disorder trained dietitian, eating disorder trained physician and or psychiatrist, but that's not always possible. So, you know, it'd be great if a person can start with one that has been recommended to them or that they have researched that lives and breathes eating disorders. Yeah. So, part of the important piece is that there are going to be days that are going to feel worse than others and you're going to feel less motivated. And those are the times where you reach out for help and you say, this has not been a good day. I don't feel motivated. I feel like doing all of these things and lean on your people. Like that's going to be a really important piece. Definitely. I mean, I think for many people, I see their team are the only people that they can open up and confide in. They don't feel that they can share the pain they're experiencing with family or friends. I mean, it's great when there's like one person out of their professional team that they can consult with. Like I was listening to a client yesterday and her best friend from college, he came to visit her and she was like, Robin, it was great. I could you know, eat what I wanted. I didn't feel 
judged and shamed by my parents. And I was like, it's amazing. You have that one friend. And then, you know, when she started speaking, the friend started telling her, he's like, yes, I've struggled with body image and eating disorder for a long time. So she was like, wow, it's amazing. Like men too. I was like all day long, (laughs) but I was like, you went into your brave space to share something really painful and he was able to as well. So I was like, sounds like a great person to be able to speak with regularly. Yeah. And you're talking about vulnerability there, which is so difficult. I mean, definitely for people who struggle with eating disorders, but for everyone, vulnerability is not an easy thing. So also easier said than done. (laughs) Yeah. I know you wrote your book geared toward clinicians and family members. So just talking to family members for a second, what are some things that you would say to them if let's say they suspect a loved one is struggling with an eating disorder? What are some things that either they can do or what to look out for? I mean, when you say what to look out for, that's a whole other podcast episode because they may not be obvious areas, but I'll just say, I mean, and like what you were speaking about before, Kelf, like it's been normalized to eat a certain way and it's challenging when family members haven't resolved their own issues with food. So if a person has disordered eating or thinking and they're like offering their own advice about the food part that oftentimes can make matters worse. So I think for a family member to be honest, say I'm really concerned. This is what I've seen. You know, I'd love to be able to help you. You know, how can I help you? And really not talking about as a partner or parent, what you eat, what you don't eat, how much you move, how little you move, comments about your body that you're not feeling comfortable in your body. I think all that's really activating and really just being an ear that the individual struggling can speak to. And essence, like, how can I support you? What would you need from me? I think it's important to not talk about, oh, I have days that I feel this way. I mean, because I think it's been just so out there and been normalized and really to be sensitive and compassionate to this is such a difficult topic to discuss. And if you're not communicating in a very gentle way, it can just explode. And that loved one probably won't share with you and will deny what's going on and be resentful. Yeah. So not taking the position of the treatment team that you are the listening ear, you are part of their family. That's easier said than done. It's uh, literally, I feel like so often the parents or partners all here and say like, just tell them to eat the dinner. It's very easy. And I know they'll try to be patient, but then it's like, I was listening to a client and she was like, my father just asked me to eat the home and toshin with the family. And I, and I was, it was like, Robin, I, you know, and so I think it's hard when you're put on a spot and you're confronting, that's terrible. Like you're yelling at that person in front of a dinner table to eat a dessert. Yeah. But even just comments about weight, I think that people have this misconception to say, oh, you look great. You know, if somebody needed weight restoration or medical rehabilitation, and they do physically look different to say something like you look great is so activating in someone's mind. They might translate it as, oh, I look terrible. Yeah. I mean, I think not making any comments, positive or negative about a person's body shape or size, because I could just feed into the disease. So don't talk about how they look. Don't talk about their food. Just ask them how you can be there for them. Be a listening ear. Yeah. Not to talk about what you do, what works for you. Yeah. It's not about you. 
this is, I mean, really good advice for anybody in any relationship. It's not all about you. You are a great person, but relationships are give and take. So listen, validate, ask questions, really, really try to understand the other person's perspective. And if you can't, then ask, ask how you can better understand. Trying to put yourself in their shoes. Yeah. Which I understand is very difficult if you've never been there, but that's also the sort of thing. It's very humbling. If I don't know what a person's going through, I'm not going to insert myself and say, well, I think you should do all of these things. Cause I don't know. It's easier said than done. It's I think so difficult, especially when individuals have, I always say you can't choose your birth family. You can choose your chosen family and it's hard enough to work on changing yourself, but we can't change other people. And when family members will say, oh, I want to support you. And how can I help you? And then they hijack the conversation. So this is what I do. And this is my belief. It's a very difficult place to be. In. Yeah, for sure. I'm thinking about the upcoming holiday. And well, I'm actually not even sure if it's going to be upcoming anymore. But point being, there's a lot of family. If people celebrate Easter or Passover, and some have more family time than others. And just thinking about things that people can do. First of all, if you are a family member of somebody who is struggling, sort of taking exactly what we're saying and putting that out there, you don't have to talk about it at all. It doesn't have to be something that you bring up if they bring it up. Sure. But if somebody who's going into family time and they're struggling with their own stuff with food, you do not have to sit at the table for endless amount of hours. You do not have to endure anybody's comments you can very politely or not so politely pick yourself up and leave. 100% creating a boundary in regards to what's going to benefit you. I speak about that with clients all the time. How is this going to help you? What is in your best interest? Don't worry if this person is offended. Is it a supportive environment for you or is it an activating environment? Exactly. And, and again, theme of today, it's easier said than done but it's really important to maintain your own mental health to put boundaries up. Definitely. And people that don't like boundaries are people that oftentimes lack them in their own life. Yeah. What's a, I don't know if it's a quote or just somebody smart said something like the people who are upset with you when you lay boundaries are the people who are benefiting from you not having boundaries. So, you know, take what you want from that. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Robin, for joining us on this, on my podcast. Before I let you go, can you share with our listeners where they can find you? Sure. So my website, I have two websites. My private practice website is askaboutfood.com. And my book website is theeatingdisordertrap.com. And I have links to everything I'm doing between my book, my podcast, my online course, my Instagram is Robin with the Y Goldberg RDN. What's your course about, by the way? It's a course I created with colleague Becca Clegg, who's an eating disorder therapist in Atlanta. And we created your recovery resource, a online course for parents, partners, caregivers that have someone struggling with an eating disorder, because there's not a ton of resources out there for the loved one and how they can obtain support. So we have from their own self-care to, we have videos on it, worksheets, a whole plethora. We're actually looking at revising part of it, but it's something that really has been lacking in the field. 
especially by two seasoned in-sorter providers. Yeah, I will. And I'll link to that in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah, that would be awesome. And the, the link, so on my websites, there's a link for it. So yeah, that would be wonderful. I appreciate it. Perfect. Yeah, it's definitely a resource we need. I mean, there's so many people who will ask about support groups and just even videos. Like, how can I learn more information? So this is... We have this all in it. Yeah, there's 35 modules oh, cool. we have from navigating what treatment looks like from the insurance oh my piece, God, that's a huge one. from free or low fee support groups, from how you can help. Like a lot of what we discussed today, it's a different angle of my book, but really how the loved one can work on themselves because that's oftentimes missing. Yeah, that's a definitely a big one. Um, well, thank you again. Sure. All right. I will talk to you soon. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.